Where would you like to be this morning? If you could be, if you could be anywhere, where would that be? Would it be maybe the beach? Oh, that's Hawaii. Isn't that awesome? Maybe in Colorado in the mountains, uh, snow skiing. I'd rather be on the beach myself, but maybe you'd rather be at home in bed asleep. Don't agree to that at this point, you'll hurt my feelings. You know, I want to tell you, of all the places that you could be, the greatest place you can be is in the center of God's will for your life. Did you know that? Whether that's in Hawaii or whether that's in Dubak or whether that's in Ruston, the greatest place you can be is in the middle of God's will. We're in John chapter 9. We're talking about finding your best life. We talked about last week, you got to deal with your junk. you got to get rid of your junk. Let God forgive you, cleanse you to have your best life. And this morning, we're talking about this. Being God in God's will is an essential key to your best life. Now, I brought my keys up here this morning, my keychain. And I'm, I'm not exact. Can you see all these keys? Now, this is the truth. Half of them, I have no idea where they go to. I'm just afraid to throw them away, you know, because then I'll need them, and I've got a little pack rat in me. But three of these keys are essential. This, this gets me in and out of my car. That's essential, isn't it? I've got a key that gets me in this building and that's essential, and I have a key that gets me in my house. I, though, I, I need those keys, don't I? These other 84,000 keys on here, I don't really need. Being in God's will is an absolute essential key. It's not an optional key. In verses 1 and 2, it kicks off the story, and it says, Now all the kings west of the Jordan River heard about what had happened. These were the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Prizites, Hivites, Jebusites, who lived in the hill country in the western foothills and along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far north as the Lebanon Mountains. These kings combined their armies to fight as one against Joshua and the Israelites. Here's what's going on. In chapter 8, Jewish people follow God, follow God's will. They went to battle. They're, they're taking the promised land, and part of their getting their best life, taking this land, is they're having to root out these bad people. These people God had given hundreds of years to repent, and they hadn't. They're evil people. They worship false gods, and they had great success in this battle. And so now they're, they're getting ready. They're regrouping. Everything had been going great. Now, and then they're fixing to blow it big time. They're fixing to make some decisions that are absolutely wrong and that are going to cost them dearly because they get out of God's will. Now, I want to simplify this this morning, and, and there's different ways of wording this. This is not uh, perfect, but let me give you three concepts of God's will, and we're, we're going to talk about the second one this morning. The, the first concept is God's absolute will. God's absolute will are things that are just going to happen. Let me give you just a few of these. The Bible says Jesus is going to return again to earth. That's called the second coming. That's going to happen. You can't pray that away. You can't wish that away. You can't hope that away. That's going to happen. The Bible says God someday is going to judge you, and he's going to judge me. He's going to send us to heaven or to hell based on what we did with Jesus. Christ. We can't wish that away. We can be ready for it. We can't pray that away. That's God's absolute will. God's absolute will is what is absolutely going to happen. The second thing is what I'd say is God's perfect will. God's perfect will is not what God forces on us or God has decreed is just got to happen. This is but, but this is what the, the best route for you and me. What are some ideas of God's perfect will? Being saved, 2 Peter 3, 9, it says God doesn't want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Being 
Being saved is God's perfect will for your life. Living the Christian life, being faithful in your marriage, being an honest person, a decent person, all those things. Uh, hey, being in the right career, living in the right town, marrying the right person. Those things are God's perfect will for your life. And, and again, that's what we're going to major today. The third is God's permissive will. And, and permissive will is what you may be facing in about 30 or 40 minutes when you have to make the choice between hamburger or hot dog. Don't pray about it, friend. Just get something. Don't hold the line up. Here's what I do. I just get both. That solves the dilemma, doesn't it? So God's permissive will. God doesn't care if you use mayonnaise or ketchup. Anybody knows Christians use ketchup, right? But again, I'll just use both. So God's permissive will, God gives us a lot of freedom there. But we're talking about God's perfect will for our life today. What God wants you to do, what God has for you, and you've got to make the right choices or it's not going to go well for you. Now, let's look at some negative things first that are seen in this story. There are some factors that cause us to get out of God's will. There are some reasons, internal reasons, the Jewish people are fixing to mess up big time. And some reasons that we do too. Now, here's, the, here's what I've discovered. I became a Christian when I was 19. I'm 53 today. None of these things have changed. These were exactly the same way in Joshua's day. They were exactly the same way when I was 19, and then they're exact today. And I think they're going to be the exact until God comes back. Here's two ways the Jewish people messed up and that we mess up too. We get arrogant and overconfident. Now, again, I, I'm sure no one in this room today struggles with this. But take notes because you know people who do. In chapter 8, the Jewish people had a great victory. Man, they had defeated the enemy soundly. And they're high-fiving each other. And they're excited. And everything's wonderful. And they're fixing to blow it major league. No. Folks, you are vulnerable to the devil. You are vulnerable to make some bad choices when you're tired when you're depressed, when you're physically sick or emotionally you're, you're, you're not where you need to be, you haven't got enough sleep, enough rest, that's a vulnerable time. And you may make some decisions then that will cost you. Here's another time when you're vulnerable, and that's when, when things are going great because we have a tendency to get a little bit arrogant and a little bit overconfident. I heard a Marine who was in the, the North Korean War. Here's what he said. That they were taught when they took a hill, when they took a new ground, when they got a victory, immediately you don't stand around and tell each other how wonderful you are. You secure the parameter. You secure the new ground that you've conquered because the enemy, if he can, wants to take that that victory, that high ground back from you. That's exactly what Satan wants to do. It's easy and some of you may be here this morning. Things are going great. Things are going well. You're hitting home runs every time you get up to bat. Probably not literally, but figuratively. And so it's easy to get a little arrogant and overconfident, and then you can split your spiritual britches wide open. Here's another thing. We get spiritually lazy. That can go with arrogance and overconfidence for sure. Hey, you know the Bible. You've heard the, you've heard the sermon before. You've read the book. You've been down this path before. I think that may have been what was happening to the Jewish people. Man, we just heard God. We just had a great victory. We're, we're, we're going to be great. We're, you know, we're going to be we're going to be fine. We're good Christian people, and and that happens to us sometimes. I think that laziness comes from that confidence, overconfidence. I think sometimes too, we just get tired, and we don't want to do the hard work of praying and listening. I believe this with all my heart. The toughest thing to do spiritually is to zip your mouth and listen to God. It's just tough. 
It is just hard to do. And so it's easy, it's easy to get spiritually careless and to find yourself in a hole if you're not careful. Now I want to look next at some mistakes we make when we're trying to find God's will. Okay, so you're not overconfident. You're not lazy. So you go, I'm going to try to seek God and I'm going to try to find God's will, what he has for me. Let's look at some mistakes they made and, and that you make and that I make too. Number one, we base our decision on what seems wise and intelligent. In a college town, there would be no fear of this at all, would there? No, there'd be a tremendous fear of this. Verse 3 through 13 is the heart of the story. Look at it. It says, When the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho at Ai, they resorted to deception to save themselves. Do you think God knew they were being deceptive? Absolutely. They sent ambassadors to Joshua, loading their donkeys with weathered saddlebags and old patched wineskins. They put on worn-out patched sandals and ragged clothes, and the bread they took with them was dry and moldy. When they arrived at the camp of Israel at Gilgal, they told Joshua and the men of Israel, we've come from a distant land to ask you to make peace treaty with us. The Israelites replied to the Hivites, how do we know you don't live nearby? For if you do, we can't make a treaty with you. God told them, people who are in that area, you do not make a treaty with them. They replied, look, we're your servants. It's spiritual talk. But who are you, Joshua demanded. He knew something was wrong. Where did you come from? They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country. Jewish people are to destroy those people that are in that country. We're not, we're not from here. We're from a long way away. We have heard all about the might of the Lord your God and all he did in Egypt. Verse 10, we have heard what he did to the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, King Sion of Heshbon, King Og of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all of our people instructed us, take supplies for a long journey. Go meet with the people of Israel and tell them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. In verse 12, the bread was hot from the ovens when we left our homes, but now you can see it's dry and moldy. The wineskins were new when we filled them, but now they are old and split and open, and our clothing and our sandals are worn out from a very long journey. First of all, the Gibeonites, they're liars. What would have happened if they would have done the same thing Rahab did in chapter 2 and they would have repented and turned to God? I believe God would have forgiven them. I really do. And, and brought them into the fold. But that's not what they were going to do. They said, we're from a long way. Actually, they were probably about seven miles southwest of I, where these people are right now, which would be three or four miles northwest of modern-day Jerusalem. They were, they were right from this area. But listen, here's the mistake. Joshua, the godly, mature older spiritual leader Joshua and his people made. This sounds right. It feels right. This sounds wise. This sounds intelligent. Hey, I've got a degree. I'm smart. I've got it figured out. And they absolutely were fixing to make a huge mistake. Verse 14 is the little thing that these brain surgeons left out. The Israelites examined their food but did not consult the Lord. If you're taking notes, consult the Lord literally means to seek the mouth of God. Isn't that a cool concept? Okay, here's the danger. I spent a lot of time in school. Many of you spent a lot of time in school. Maybe you didn't, but you're still a smart, intelligent person. I have no doubt. Maybe you're here and you got a master's degree. You have a Ph.D. That's wonderful. That's awesome. Don't think that you're smarter than God. 
Don't, don't think because, well, I've made good decisions in the past and, and, and I'm, I, I think through things well. People tell me I have discernment and I'm intelligent. If you lean on that to stay in God's will, you're going to mess up big time at some point. Proverbs 3, 5 is one of our favorite verses around here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Read that last part with me, please, out loud. Do not. Wow. Isn't that great? At some point, you've got to trust God a lot more than you do your own intellect. Here's the second thing. We listen too much or too little to other people. We listen too much to other people sometimes. Here's the Gibeonites, and they're telling them, boy, they sound spiritual too. We're going to be your servants, man. Your God is awesome. And they're listening to these people. And I'm sure in the camp, Joshua's here, and Joshua, we don't have to go to battle, man. We're with these people. This is all going to be good. They've got to be telling the truth. And they may even formed a committee and discussed it and talked about it and all that. But all the people who they were getting input from, all of them were wrong. Sometimes we listen to the wrong people. Sometimes we don't listen enough. Uh, it's certainly, I've been guilty, and I bet everybody in this room has been guilty. We blow people off. You need to find some people who love you, who love Jesus, and who will be honest with you. And listen to them. But let, let me tell you this. I've had those people, I have those people in my life, and, and 95% of the time when I get advice from them, you know what, it's spot on. But there's been that 5%. When God was telling me something different. God's got to be the one you go to, friend. We'll see that more in a moment. Are you listening too much to others or not enough? You may or may not know the name of a guy named Jerry Vines. He's a retired preacher now. Back in the the 20th century, he was probably one of the most well-known Southern Baptist preachers in America. Pastored First Baptist Jacksonville, Florida. was the third largest Baptist church in the country, Southern Baptist Church prolific writer. He wrote many books. When he was in high school, he took an aptitude test, an aptitude test administered by intelligent people, written up by intelligent people. And they came back and they said, Jerry, you need to be in math and science. You don't ever need to consider a career in writing or public speaking. (laughs) Isn't that funny? And then he went on to be one of the most famous Baptist preachers in in the last 50 years and, and wrote tons of books. You don't blow people off for sure. But listen, the ultimate place you find out what God wants you to do is not from other people. Now, here's the third thing, and I think this is the biggie in my life, and I bet it is in yours. A mistake we make, we base our choices on what's going to make me happy. What's going to make me happy? I don't know if these Jewish people, if this was going to make them happy. I figure this is what they wanted. I figure this was the attractive and the easy decision It felt right. A man named Dan Airely wrote a book, and the title of the book is uh, an interesting title, Predictably Irrational. He's a researcher. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. Here's what he said after following hundreds of people in their decision-making process, even very well-educated people. Most of us do not make decisions based on what's right. We make decisions based simply on what we want to do. (laughs) Here's what's right. Here's the facts. Here's the truth. We do what we want to do anyway. Now, I'm guessing, because you're a lot like me, that's my biggest struggle. When something looks good and feels good and you want to do it, it's difficult to pull away from it, isn't it? Absolutely. 
And, and I hear people say this. I've said this. I hear people say this. I just want to be happy. And God just wants me to be happy, right? Okay? Stay with me for just a second on this. Does God want you to be happy? Yes. Is God's route to you being happy, you doing whatever you want to do because you think it's going to be, make you happy? Absolutely not. The route to happiness is obedience. Now listen, joy and happiness are synonymous in how they look. They have a different source. Happiness comes from what happens. Joy comes from Jesus. They look the same. And yes, God wants you to be joyful and happy. But happiness and joy is a fruit, not a root. We get it backwards. We say, I'm going to do this because it looks good. It feels good. It's going to make me happy. And it might temporarily. God says, no, no, no. Obey me. Obey me. That's where your joy and happiness is going to be. Are you following me? Don't make decisions if you want to make the right decisions simply based on what I think is going to make me happy. Here's number four this morning, and this is it. To find God's will, you seek God. You want to find God's will? You seek God. Verse 14 again, such a great verse. The Israelites examined the food. They made their pros and cons list. They talked about it. They discussed it. They decided this makes sense, and it was absolutely wrong. But they did not consult the Lord. They did not seek the mouth of God. If you want to know what God wants you to do, seek God. Doesn't that sound silly? It's so simple, yet it's so hard. Proverbs 3, 6, that goes right after Proverbs 3, 5, says, Seek His will in all you do. Seek God in all you do, and God will show you which path to take. Let me show you the two ways God will clearly show you. First is through the Bible. God shows us through the Bible. The Bible is not exhaustive. I'll explain that more in a moment, but it's perfect. It give us, gives us the parameters, 2 Timothy 3.16. It says all Scripture, not some Scripture, all Scripture is inspired. That literally means breathed by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Listen, you're seeking God's will. It begins with the Word of God. This true story happened years ago. Uh, a man I knew who was much older than me, he was a minister, told me about counseling a minister at a Baptist camp. And the minister was having an affair. He got upside down with his wife. He was in a bad spot. He knew he was in a bad spot. When you get in a bad spot, man, it gets confusing and messy. And he's talking to the man I knew, and he said, I, I don't know what to do, whether I should get out of this affair or stay in this affair. Hmm. And he said, last night I was driving down the road, and I prayed to God, if you want me to break off this affair, let two deer run in front of my truck right now, God. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. Give me a sign. While he was saying that, my friend just opened up the Bible. He said, don't commit adultery. <laughs> That's your sign. That's your deer right there. Buy you a biblical concordance. You may not need one today with a computer. Buy you a topical Bible. Topical Bible, a concordance. You can, you can take a word like marriage. You can take a word like homosexuality. You can take a word like adultery. And you can find every scripture there is in the Bible with a concordance or a topical Bible. See what the Bible says. Folks, when the Bible says it, that, that finishes it on that issue. 
That's where God's will starts. Now, here's the second part of this. Pray and listen to the Holy Spirit. Pray and listen to the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the the thing, guys. Joshua's Bible was not going to show him what to do. He had the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But if Joshua would have had all the 66 books that we have, the Bible would not have showed him what to do here. Joshua knew this. He didn't do it. He needed to seek God. He needed to pray and ask God to show him what to do. They had also an unusual way that they sought God when the Bible didn't give them a clear picture. The priest would put on a vest called the ephod. He would put two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. He would put them next to his heart, and he would pray, and God would guide him by those stones. Is that not peculiar? But God wanted to guide him. Do you believe God wants to guide you? One of the greatest things in the world is that God wants to guide you. In John chapter 16, excuse me, John chapter 14, verse 16 through 18, Jesus is getting ready to leave. The guys are nervous. Man, they love Jesus. He's going to be gone. Listen to what it says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Jesus is going, but he says, I want to give someone just like me who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it's not looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you. Listen, later he's going to live in you. Verse 18, and no, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Folks, here's one of the great things in the Bible. If you're not a Christian today, you can become one and you will leave here God living in you. Isn't that wonderful? If you're a Christian, God lives in you. The Holy Spirit, he wants to do several things. One of the things he wants to do is he wants to guide you. There's a theology called cessationism. Cessationists believe God doesn't speak anymore. That, that when the Bible was finished in the first century, God quit speaking. So if the Bible doesn't say it, do what you want. I, I don't believe that at all. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. Philippians 4, 6, it says, and uh, uh, Philippians 4, 6 first. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Why did God tell us not to pray if he wasn't going to guide us? Wouldn't that be silly? You can pray about it. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything. You're on your own. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to be with you to guide you. And that Colossians 3 that just popped up, and let the peace of Christ... Fr- rule in your heart that word rule is like an umpire or an official let the holy spirit be a god no this gets abused it's why we're scared of it people come back and say god told me god told me because something gets abused doesn't mean it's not the the process is not right god wants to speak to you through the holy spirit brooks hall is sitting there in the back brooks you're awake, aren't you? Yes, he's waving a hand at me. Brooks gave me a book to, to read called The Two Chairs. It's a great book about having your time with God every day, but also at some point pull up another chair and leave that chair empty and let God sit there and ask God some things and just be quiet and listen to him. It's tough. But listen, you're facing a decision. The Bible's your parameters, but God wants to guide you. I did this three years ago. I'm going to do it today. I want to show you a process I was taught how to find out what the Lord's telling you to do. Okay, we're going to say Brandon right there. Brandon has a job offer. He's not working at the church doing something else. Brandon gets a job offer in Dallas. And it's a moral job. It's not like being a counselor at a pornography center or anything like that. It's a moral job. So biblically, he's okay. And financially, it's going to be okay. And him and Marcy love Dallas and all that. So, you know, all the things you'd weigh out, it's all even. So Brandon goes, what does God want me to do? Here's what I do. I write yes and no and undecided at the top of a page. 
And I will literally, I will literally take my watch, maybe five minutes, and I will write down as I pray, God, is this what you want me to do? And I will listen for a peace or an uneasiness in my heart, and I record my impressions. As you begin, you can see this is kind of what happens with my life. It's kind of all over the board at first. Yes, yes, no, undecided. And then as we scroll on, it, there begins to be some consistency. And then after 11 or 12 days, Brandon tallies up. He's got 40 yeses and six noes and eight undecided. Brandon is now moving to Dallas, Texas. Is that foolproof? No. But if you're sincere and you get your heart in neutral, this is very important. You can't hear the Holy Spirit if you've already decided what you're going to do. Amen? What, you, you know what neutral means? It means you're moldable. If you've already decided, I'm taking that job. God showed me what to do. I'm, ta- I'm marrying them. I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to date them. And you're not open. To ho- this is useless. Do not waste you or God's time. You get your heart in neutral, which means I will do whatever God wants. God will lead you. Why is there some inconsistency at first? Because the devil doesn't want you to get it right. He's going to fight you. He's the author of confusion. Your own will and your own struggles pull, pull, pull. But if you get your heart neutral and say, God, I will do whatever. Give me a peace about what you want me to do and make me uneasy about what you don't want me to do. And it's in the parameters of the Bible, God will guide you. Here's why this is important to wrap it up. The stakes here are of ultimate importance. They're just absolutely, gigantically important. To save a little time, I'm not going to read the rest of this chapter. I'm just going to tell you what happens. They make a treaty. They make a pact with the Gibeonites. Absolutely weren't supposed to do that. But, by the way, they lived a long way off, right? So everything's cool. A few days later, they realize, no, these people live right here. These are the enemy. These are the people God said not to make a pact with. But they had already sworn that they won't kill them. So they can't. And so what they say to the Gibeonites, okay, you're going to be basically our slaves till time runs out. You're going to cut wood for us. You're going to bring water for us. You're going to be our slaves. And the Gibeonites, instead of trying to get right with God, say, okay, we'll be your slaves. And the Jewish people now have these people who don't worship their God, who aren't on the same team, who basically they're going to have to drag with them everywhere they go from this point on. And in the next chapter, they, have, they face some issues because of these people. Way over in 2 Samuel, there's a problem because of how Saul's family interacted with the Gibeonites. Can you correct it when you get out of God's will? Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can. Here's a weird thing. You marry the wrong person. The, the, the second you get married, they, it becomes God's will. <laughs> you're, you're with them at that point in God's eyes. I mean, you can get out of God's will, and God's still going to love you and give you a second and third chance. Absolutely. But let me tell you this. When you get out of God's will, especially in some major areas, you're going to spend the rest of your life jogging with a 30-pound weight around your back. It's going to be struggle. Being out of God's will just flat out equals struggle. Can I marry that person or date that person that God doesn't want for me? You sure can. But you just need to know there are going to be consequences that come with that. Being out of God's will is not your sweet spot. Now, here's the last thing. In God's will, it is your best life. This is where, you're, this is where you stay in the great spot. Romans 12, 2. It says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world, 
But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. God's will, listen, it's good. That means it's nice, it's right, it's pure. God's will is pleasing. It's what's going to make you joyful and happy. And by the way, God's will for you is perfect. Folks, God's will can be hard. It can be difficult. But someone said, and this is so true, when you're in God's will, that's where your sweet spot meets with the world's need. That's where your life will matter. When you are in God's will, that's where you're going to find joy. That's where you're going to be effective. That's where God intends you to be. A few weeks ago, I saw a quote, and I think I know what the guy was saying. He said, one definition of hell will be to stand before God someday. And for God to show us the life we could have had and the person that we could have been if we just stayed in his will. Let's make the choice today to get there and stay there. Would you pray with me? This morning, if you're a Christian, I pray, and I've been praying all week, that you would make the right choices today about this crucial area of your life. If you're not a Christian, the first part of God's will is giving your life to Him. I want to ask you to pray with me today if you're ready. Pray with me and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to repent of my sin. And Jesus, I believe you're God's son and that you died and arose for me. Come into my heart. And I surrender my life to you. Let me have your attention. We're going to stand in just a second. And when we do, maybe you just ask Jesus to come in your life. Or you're ready to do that. Man, this is the first step in being in God's will. Would you come today and give your life to Christ? Maybe you're here today and you'd like to join our church. You can do it after church. It's like you can give your life to Christ after church with one of our ministers. Or you can come today and join us. Listen, for some of you, the next step in being in God's will may be to join the church. Come and do that today. Maybe as a Christian, you are are sailing right today. That's awesome. Just keep it up. Because it's so easy to get tripped up here. Maybe as a Christian today, you're facing a big decision that a whole lot weighs for you and other people. Will you make a commitment to seek God and do His will? Maybe you want to come and pray at the altar or pray with a minister. Or maybe as a Christian today, the truth is you need to do some repenting where you're standing or at the altar and say, God, forgive me, and I want to do everything I can to get back lined up with you. Let's stand. God leads you. You come. We'll be waiting on you.